This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm down in St. Petersburg, Florida today with uh, Chris Johnson of Green Bench Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks, man. Glad you're here. It's, uh, it's a wonderful, sunny, warm December day with a high of 80 degrees. And yeah. we're, we're sitting here upstairs in the web cellar expansion of Green Bench, which uh, opened not, uh, not too long ago. Yeah, no, uh, this March, so just uh, about nine months ago. Uh, it's a beautiful spot. We're surrounded by a bunch of barrels of uh, aging mixed fermentation and sour beer, and uh, there's a, a live crowd hanging out and enjoying some beers here this afternoon. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about mixed fermentation, uh, uh, mixed culture fermentation. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about even some of the, the lager program that uh, you know, Chris has uh, developed significantly over the last couple of years here at Green Bench. I'm sure we'll throw a few other subjects in the mix there because, hey, we're in Florida and the beer uh, craft beer world here is really different than uh, the craft beer world in other parts of the country. Uh, not in a bad way. I think it's fascinating to find how uh, regional differences in craft beer kind of, uh, you know, what product mixes, the way the brewers brew, what they focus on, what consumers want to drink, um, you know, differs from place to place. And it makes for a much richer craft beer world in the United States. And it's so much cooler for it. So we're going to kind of delve into that from a Florida perspective. Uh, But first, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more, all trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today, or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. I should have also mentioned, this is a this is our first episode of the new year in 2020, and so we have some new sponsors, and we have some new messages, and it's always fun, and we, uh, we certainly thank the folks that are supporting us. One of those new sponsors is Old Orchard. Old Orchard supplies craft juice blends from the heart of Beer City, USA. As the industry blending experts, they supply major national brands and growing breweries alike. They've been the best-kept juicy secret in craft beverage for years, but now the secret's out. Breweries across the board are experiencing a seamless transition to Old Orchard as their new juice supplier. So hop aboard the Old Orchard fruit train. Their sample kit starter pack is waiting for you at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. So Chris, we always... Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) We've known each other for a few years now. Uh, it's always fun to see you at, at outside events. This is the first time I've actually connected with you here in Florida. This is actually the first time I've been to Green Bench. Yeah. Um, I have personal connections to Florida. I grew up in Orlando and uh, lived here for two decades before taking off to New York City and then now in Colorado for the last decade. Um, I've got family here, and it's fun to kind of see this vibe that you guys have built. Uh, I was I talked about it earlier, but uh, – 
I mean, it's a Friday afternoon. Uh, there's folks sitting out, out outside. They're sitting in both of the tap rooms that you now have here and at bars. And it's fun to see a good craft beer vibe in a state that uh, may not necessarily have a reputation for being uh, so engaged with craft beer like this. Sure, yeah. I'd, I'd say that, um, you know, Flo- Florida at the moment has, or at least specifically St. Petersburg, and, and I think, um, you know, maybe as a microcosm, uh, green bench itself at the moment um we what we do have is good weather you know people are outside in december uh everywhere else in the country it's you know a lot cooler and and they're probably nobody's in shorts as much as you see outside right now uh kids running around so our weather's really nice i think um it it, like we we sell a ton of beer at this time of year because there's a lot of people coming back home to visit family and everything which is exciting uh and kind of fun for us you know i think that we have a vibrant scene, but it's very young. So that's, I think, really the, the big key. When people think of Florida, it's like, I don't remember, you know, think of it as a beer place. It's like, we have a lot of beer here, uh, surprisingly. We just haven't had it for very long. I think that's really the big key. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about your arc through craft beer. You know, wh- how you got to where you are today, uh, running the kind of brewing program for Green Bench. Yeah, I got into beer, I guess it was a little over 10 years now, about 12 years now. Um, I started home brewing. I uh, bought my equipment over in Tampa when I was going to college at University of South Florida, kind of picked up a hobby, although my father actually was a home brewer in the 90s. Uh, I, I never had anything because I was too young, sure, but I, sure. I remember him liking it, and I picked it up as a hobby in college, and then next thing I knew, I was in a homebrew club, and the first beer I ever wrote and brewed, I won a statewide medal for, and then I started winning all these circuit medals here in, in Florida and then regionally, and I was like, man, this is cool. They give you awards for this kind of thing, and so um, it just sort of snowballed. It was it's kind of crazy looking back because all the people that were friends of mine then, uh, right when we got into beer are all the same people that now like have breweries in town and or work, you know, at breweries. So, um, yeah, we all kind of grew up together, home brewing. And then I got a job at cigar city. I worked there for about a year and then went back to Southern brewing and winemaking the homebrew shop. They hired me to open a brewery for them. So I opened that brewery, ran that for about two and a half years, taught brewing classes, and then um, finally was like, okay, once I opened that brewery, I was like, I, I can open a brewery. So I started looking into doing that, wrote a business plan several times. And then um, finally in uh, 2013, like March, we started, we broke ground here. Um, and then we opened in September 25th of 13, Green Bench opened. All right. And we we're the first brewery in St. Petersburg, like the first actual microbrewery to actually open its doors and sell beer in St. Pete, Florida. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah, there was so there there was a, a small brewery called Brewer's Tasting Room that okay. was here, and they're still here. They're really just a bar. They have like a small one barrel system, or I think it's it might be one and a half. But basically, they would they had a brewer's license, but they had home brewers come and brew on it to sell there. But they hadn't actually brewed anything yet. Huh. And then uh, Cycle didn't have their brewing license yet, but they had their tasting room open downtown. They brewed everything in Gulfport, which is a different city. Uh, okay. So when we opened, we were the first brewery to actually open and sell beer in, in St. Petersburg. Well, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. I, you know, I came over here plenty of times in the 90s mm-hmm. for uh, concerts and shows. And I've driven this I-4 corridor between Orlando and Tampa hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, you know... But there certainly was not a, a beer scene over no, here, even no. in, even in the mid to late nineties when I was of drinking age. Because that's, because that's <laughs> dating how, it. That's how old I am. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, but seeing seeing this here and seeing this vibe now, you know, 
looking at St. Pete now, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, the last time I was here and really focused on beer was probably 2014. Um, it's a different place than it was even in 2014. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we make up for, I think, in sort of, you know, age. It's it's how rapidly we've gone, every, we've grown every year. And, and that might be, the benefit of that might be because we're so new to it that we're able to see the rest of the world having gone through a, a, a longer evolution than we have. And so I think out of the gate when we opened, um, we were able to, you know, start at a different place than everyone else did yeah. and then every year our expansions are rather you know our growth in, in sort of um, the market it, it exceeds what I think the national yeah. numbers are it also seems like you all have, have grown in an interesting way probably not intentionally but uh, you know cycle makes their barrel aged imperial stouts yeah uh, you know they make some a lot of hazy IPAs as well you mm-hmm. all make some hazy IPAs you know you make an occasional barrel aged imperial stout mm-hmm. Um, but you have focused instead on mixed fermentation and sour beers and a whole bunch of lagers now. We're drinking mm-hmm. a Fest beer right now. We have an American adjunct lager before this. Um, talk to me a little bit about how Green Bench has found um, a niche for craft beer and craft beer consumers here in St. Pete. Well, I, I think that for Green Bench specifically, when we were opening, we were building this place. And, and I think even going back before that, maybe the beers that I was producing and the beers that I was interested in um, in drinking as well, um, typically speaking, they, they tend to be dry. They tend to be, you know, what I consider and usually generally when I say dry, I'm, I'm thinking drinkability. Something that's dry, I can drink a bunch of it. I didn't really like sweet things. I still don't. Yeah. Actually, even as a kid, like I don't like cake. I don't like sweets. I don't really eat much sugar at all except for beer really um so i've never enjoyed like drinking those so i think it was easy for me to latch on to beer styles that had that characteristic which for me were you know at the beginning it was ipa and saison and lager those were the three and lager later yeah um nam- namely because i just it, it was I, as a home brewer especially early on and even as a professional brewer sure. at cigar city it was like you don't want to mess with lager. It's too complicated. No one knows how to do it, really. And that was really kind of how it was. All, all of us in craft had this idea that lager was what the macro brewers made yeah. also. And so why do that? Why not do this other thing that's different than that? Sure, sure. I remember the conversation really being like, you know, it's going to take you double the amount of time for the same amount of beer. Like, it doesn't make sense. And this is way more flavorful. And it was all that. And which, you know, has its place in some sense. But I think that um, yeah, those specific styles, like, again, for me at the very beginning, it was IPA and Cezanne just spoke to my palate. And I think that that was the, that, that's why we ended up making what we made. Yeah. We, we, we opened our door saying, you know, we knew and we were making Imperial Stouts at Cigar City all the time. And, um, and yeah, like you said, occasionally I'll come out with a barrel aged stout or barrel aged barley wine or something. And, and they do really well for us. I, and people are every day, they're like, when are you going to make another one? I'm like, I don't know, once every two years. I just, I, I, I eventually want to make them because they're challenging and they're fun, but it's so few and far between for me because I don't like drinking them that much. <laughs> so I just stick to the things sure, that I like sure. drinking. So we started making, you know, super dry IPAs and Cezanne. We started with a, you know, a fooder. The day we opened, we had one. Um, first one in the southeast of the country. And so we started doing, you know, Britannomyces and Cezanne fermented beers in oak. And then mixed firm things, which, again, all typically dry beers. And sure, then lager sure. has come now as this thing that I've gotten so excited about. And um, because it's, it is literally a different way to brew that I'm learning now. So, 
So for craft in general, you know, this move into lager brewing you know, has, has generally been a, a more recent kind of development. Not, you know, there have been craft lager brewers uh, for years and years and years. It's been a niche thing. And this kind of, you know, craft diving into the world of lagers and understanding that world of, of lager brewing is still, a, you know, two or three years old now, you know, in terms of a, a major kind of uh, craft direction. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, your inspiration for that, uh, where, how you've looked at that and uh, where you're pulling from in terms of process, recipe, et cetera. Um, I think when I'm when I'm thinking about you know starting to make loggers again, I, I guess to be completely frank, I, I think that the majority of the brewers and and the ones that I I talk to and the ones that are interested in this but necessarily haven't jumped haven't taken that sort of leap, similar to mixed firm or or you know that sort whole side of beers. To be honest with you, there's a lot of trepidation because there's just not much information that they have. None of us have been trained to make lager, and I think most brewers are just scared to make it, frankly. Yeah, they're scared yeah. to make mixed firm, mixed firm beers, frankly, and they're scared to make lagers, and especially when we first opened. Um, and there's a little bit more information about mixed firm, a little bit more information about lager, and I think that's why, generally speaking, sure. we're all starting to do it a little bit more. Maybe with mixed fermentation, there's a little bit of a wider mm-hmm. range of, uh, you know, I should say the the precision needed is, is you know, has a broader margin of error. I agree. You know, than the logger side because of whatever expectations are around mm-hmm. loggers. Well, I think it all stems back to, sure. There's a, there's a, there's a, a there's a little bit more latitude, right. Uh, of what you can hit. But I think that there was, there's also this like lack of information, right? Like, most brewers were afraid to do mixed firm beers because they were afraid it was gonna. They were told and afraid that it was gonna contaminate everything, and then their whole brew was gonna fall apart and burn before they came into work the next day. And so there was just it was just fear. It was all out of yeah, fear. Yeah. So sure, you're afraid of doing that. I'm not afraid of doing that. And that's really how we started our brewery. I'm not afraid of doing any of that stuff. And so that's why we did it. And the same thing with lager. Frankly, at the very beginning, was not only were they beers that I loved drinking anyway. I mean, I remember before Green Bench opened, my favorite beer, the beer that I drank the most of was Victory Prima Pills. Like, that's all I drank when, sure, I, when it was sure. anywhere. And actually, at Southern, I used to buy that beer and have it on tap all the time. And I was kind of the only one drinking it. And so these days, most of my, and again, once I decided I was going to sort of bite off this lager thing, which was probably about, and well, now it's almost five years ago. I'd say like, yeah, in a couple months, it'll be five years that I said, all right, I'm going to learn everything I can. Um, it took me took me two years to feel comfortable with the light lager you had, the adjunct lager you had uh, earlier. It took me, you know, two and a half years to I felt good about postcard pills. Um, and as I started to make more of them, I started to meet more people. And really the biggest inspiration for me, um, well, originally for postcard, the first inspiration actually was Wiseacre in, in Memphis. It was uh, David and Keelan. I went up, I'm from Memphis originally, so are they, so... I was home visiting family. Cheers on that, by the way. I think I've mentioned it before, but I went to college in Memphis. Hell yeah, man. (laughs) Go Tigers. Uh, Rhodes College. Dude, you know what's funny about Rhodes? Well, still go Tigers. But uh, (laughs) Rhodes, I went to Snowden, which is like right across the street from Rhodes. And I had a big brother that was at Rhodes. And he used to come play chess with me and stuff. He was on the soccer team. That's cool. Right across the street from the zoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've got some great stories about that zoo that are not suitable for this podcast. (laughs) One day. Yeah. One day. So um, I had had Tiny Bomb, and that was kind of the beer that I was like, man, that's such a a good approachable. I I, I tasted it, and I was like, 
I get that Memphis is ready for this because this is this tastes like what St. Pete needs right now. Yeah. And so I came back with the mindset of that's the one I wanted to make. Now, was it the sort of in game for our logger program? Not necessarily, but it was the it was the core brand for it. This is what made the most sense for St. Petersburg. And so that was my first bit of inspiration. Uh, and they helped me a lot with that beer. And then uh, it was meeting Ashley and Bill, which I had met them previously uh, years before. But Ashley and Bill of Beer Style Lager House. Of Beer Style Lager House, you're right. Uh, in Denver, which I, you know, I, I have said several times, I, I think they're the best, you know, German style lager producers in the country. I've, I've had, I've been to almost every one of the specific like lager breweries in the country at this point on, in this last four years in my quest to sort of learn as much as I can about it. And I've spoken to pretty much everyone at all of those. Uh, and there, there's just nothing like Slowport Pills. There's, there's, there's really nothing like the Bierstadt Hellas. Um, and, and while there are fantastic ones otherwise, I mean, the guys at Notch making, you know, session loggers. And sure, sure. I went up there this July and spent time with them, brewing beers with them to learn their process and learn specifically the Czech style um, methods of brewing and, and, and then traveling to Europe as well uh, several times to, to learn these things. And but so most of my inspiration, generally speaking, I would say for the beers that we're producing have come almost directly from Ashley and Bill. Um, I text her. Probably every day. Um, All right. We have just, it's just chains of text messages and, and she has been unbelievable uh, as far as a sort of a, a tutor and a guide on, on those styles and has answered every question I've ever had. And we, we actually, I'd say probably the highlight of like, of I'd say most recent highlight of my career was last March we opened here. We brewed a collab with them. They came here. We brewed a, a double decocted uh, Weizenbach and, um, downstairs in the cellar, the first night Web City Cellar opened, the, the, the new facility we're in, we had a Bierstadt lager night here at Greenbench. And I had Slowpore Pills on tap, I had Hellas, I had Dunkel, and I had Doppelbach. And Bill and Ashley are just are crushing postcard pills. And then they looked and they're like, this Pilsner is amazing. And I was just like, I couldn't even, I, like you couldn't, have, you couldn't have brought my spirits down, right? Like it was the coolest moment of, yeah. of, of it all. So yeah, I'd say, and so learning from them has been huge, you know, and then, and then being able to, again, bite off something that I know for a fact, there's no one else right now really in the state that can like actually do that stuff, like, or rather is too trepidatious to even attempt it. Um, and that's been Greenbridge's motto from the beginning. Let's let's dive into some of the specifics about that because I'm really curious about uh, what the difference makers are in that kind of lager process, you know. But first, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want, need, and expect from your supplier of pro-brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, did you know the breweries that serve food see an increase in revenue of 1.8x? Second Kitchen is a food tech startup that connects local breweries to iconic neighborhood restaurants to help provide your brewery with food experiences to keep customers in your tap room longer. Second Kitchen provides the technology, support, custom menus, and more at no cost to your brewery. So check out Second Kitchen for that. Um, let's still delve into specifics. You know, it's one thing to say I've learned loggers. 
but you know when we start well, talk, I'm learning loggers learning <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever <laughs> no way. has ever mastered maybe maybe toffed at uh, Sean Robert, yeah. but uh, I think even he would say that he's still <laughs> learning every day from this perspective you know from what do you find to be some key differentiators both in your recipe design and in your process around something like postcard pills so when it comes to the the, the basics of sort of what we do, right, um, and what we've implemented in order to not just increase the, uh, I guess, the direction of these products to, like, what I always wanted them to taste like, like, what I always envisioned them kind of being, I mean, I guess on one hand, to start with, it's what I drink the most, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm extremely familiar with what it tastes like every single batch. It's, I drink more postcard pills than anything else we make. So... I think that whatever tweaks and changes I'm making are with the goal of creating an extremely drinkable, fairly dry, um, sort of floral, hoppy, like not hoppy in the sense that we would think with IPA, but hoppy in the sense that we would think with Pilsner, you know, like this really nice floral, clean, lager, grain, uh, dry beer. And so I think that the once once you get whatever process you have, whatever capabilities you have, because not everyone has the capability of, of making traditional lager. Like I, I, I don't have a copper clad Steinecker system, right? I can't do I can't do exactly what some of these some other breweries are doing. So there is there are those limitations, but I think that once you get as close as you can to those elements, and once you figure out under your conditions you know, how to get it exactly as close as you possibly can to what you want it to taste like. The next step is how do you implement small things to accentuate individual characteristics of that beer to make in each of those individual points that you try to hit even more pronounced and more uh, interesting. And so, for example, as, as, as simple as maybe even in my head I would think it is, um, the implementation of decoction on a beer like that completely changes everything. So this year, in addition, in our sort of big expansion that we did, we dropped another vessel in our brew house specifically for decoction. So now, Postcard's a single decocted Pilsner. It's still an American style Pils. I still call it American style Pils. We still use corn in it. It's 5% corn. That beer, by the way, it's, I'll just, it's 95 or 90% um, Vireman Pilsner malt. It's 5% six row American raw and then 5% just flaked corn. And just enough to say, like, this is an American-style pills. We also use Mount Hood hops. So it's all a U.S.-grown hops. Again, all stuff that are that is inspired mostly by Wiseacre, by Tiny Bomb. And we use the Augustiner culture on this beer as well. And so had always been sort of a single infusion beer. By implementing this sort of decoction characteristic, what we're looking for now is an increased malt profile, right? Like a more, not more, like, not intense in the sense of sweetness, but intense in the sense of cracked grain aromatics full malt mouthfeel and sort of taste and then still dry floral hoppy on the back end and and clean Um, and so the idea is we had gotten it as good as it could possibly be doing single infusion for years and then the implementations and and by the way that kind of fucked everything up like don't get wrong like like it's hard like it is not it's like we've spent the last six months fumbling around trying to do these decoctions like it it has not been easy it is it is a completely different method of of brewing than i have ever learned in what way well for one making sure that like getting okay so i was in colorado 
with Ashley and Bill. And after we had just started doing it, and I kind of said to them, I was like, you know, my gravities are lower, for example. Like, I'm getting in my kettle. I'm not getting in a kettle full with the same original gravity. And yet, then I was. And so, and I was having these, these louder issues, um, which, of course, I was attributing to potentially the transfer of the mash from the, from the mixer to the louder ton. And then, uh, but I was seeing a lot more powder than I was. So, like, you know, I went back to my manufacturer, and we we're looking at this, like, we have this low shear pump and, you know, oversized sort of piping for the actual pump itself. So, it's not like the actual impeller isn't, like, like shearing all of the grain and I went back and made sure all that stuff wasn't the case and one of the first questions that she asked me like literally right away she says what's your water to grist ratio and I told her she's like well she then told me uh liters to kilos and I was like all right well let me do the math and so I gave her what it was and she's like you're gonna need to double it I was like what that's the thinnest mash I ever heard in my life and then Bill's answer to that was German brewers don't like to see higher than two to three Play-Doh, or three to four Play-Doh above original gravity, pre-ball gravity. And I was like, that is crazy thin. Like, I, it, it's like information like that, that sort of, I, 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 where would I have ever have, see, have known that? Like, that's not a, right. I've read the books. I don't, I don't see that anywhere. And so it's just sort of this, you know, I see sometimes a thinner mash, and some, but those are for different reasons. And so when they said that, it was sort of epiphany, kind of like, okay, well, this all starts to make a little more sense. And, and, and those specific things haven't completely like worked on our system as well as others. So we've had to take those, try them, adjust those. We finally got to the point where consistently our louders are, you know, we're laddering in two hours to kettle full. We're seeing our numbers hit the right, you know, uh, sort of original gravities. And then we're seeing our final gravities being a little bit higher than normal. So our beers are coming out maybe a touch sweeter. So we had to figure out in our steps, like to make sure that we're resting at the exact times where I've got like five thermometers in there, making sure the temperatures are right, that I'm reading it correctly. And I mean, it's, it, it's almost endless. Like it is, a, and all of us, and my staff is, is, is brilliant, right? Like I, I have like, including myself, we basically have four head brewers. Like two of them have been head brewers at breweries before, right? My, my, my production staff. And the other one could be in immediately right now. Um, so the four of us are head brewers staring at each other saying, I don't know how to figure, I don't know, this doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I'm just going to, and at one point we threw, like, we sort of jokingly were like, oh, we're going to do lagers today. We were doing them all the time. And what comes next with, oh, we're going to brew this, we would just shrug our shoulders. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a challenge, but it's been, like, so exciting. You get to learn how to brew all over again. And, and I think that those challenges are, and, and as we've, discovered how to go over a lot of those challenges man the rewards are so much better and the beer continues to get better and like every batch it's like man i learned this from this one that's gonna apply it and the beer comes out better and it's and we're not even close to being done like not even close to having fear i i was joking was like man we're gonna be doing this for the next three years we'll be figuring this out like until we feel good about one brand like one brand and i don't think that everybody is willing to do that that's that's what loggers have taught me and that's what even mixed firm stuff before that has taught me you know like yeah. i just that stuff's yeah. hard that's a lot of investment so we, we you know we worked through the brewing process we worked through this decoction process um talk to me a little bit about the fermentation and finishing process on your lagers and uh, any lessons that you may have learned through that kind of cellar approach uh, sure. recently well so one thing that i wish i had space for at this point we're lagering we're horizontal tanks i don't have any space for them anymore um 
nor would I have even before this, frankly. Uh, but that's kind of the one thing we don't we don't have the luxury of having. So it is a it is a little bit of a challenge to create exactly those sort of you know traditional logger characteristics sure. via that at least. But I will say, man, when we added that centrifuge, it it made everything better. It like. Uh, a postcard came out of the centrifuge tasting like it had sat in the keg for three weeks, which is sometimes I wouldn't even drink. I'd be like, I don't know. We're, we're, we're basically, you know, quote unquote, lagering in the kegs because I didn't like how it tasted until well after it had aged even longer. And after it already sure, aged in sure. the fermenter, like it's been there for weeks. Now I got to sit in the kegs for a while. And now with the centrifuge, that was huge. That was the beginning of last year. That was massive. So immediately we're coming out of the out of the lagering process, like after we're crashed, we're completely cold, go right into the bright tank. It's like ready to drink immediately. So that was huge. Fermentation wise, it depends on the beer. I mean, obviously I think because we're using Augustiner, for those that maybe don't know, Augustiner is a great lager culture for uh, sort of myriad of temperatures. Um, some of the other lager cultures are really only work really, really low like well below 50, like closer to like 44, 40, you know, that, that range where Augustiner can go, we've gone as high as 55 degrees, which like, so postcard, for example, we ferment postcard at 55. And while that exudes some soft fruitiness, it's there, there is a good amount of hop character in that beer that I think it's complimented and it works really well with that beer. Whereas like, I can't ferment Hellas at 55. I have to bring I have to bring Hellas down below 50 on Augustiner, and it takes a little longer, but it's way cleaner. So I think on the fermentation side, playing around with different temperatures on whatever beers, you know, for example, like we like like I said, Hellas, or um, I'm also like really into smoked beers, so <laughs> like heavy, and I'll, that is a divisive deal too. Like half my staff hates it. Actually, half my brewers hate it. Like they can't stand it. But we're just I'm like screw it. We're putting smoke in everything. So we have a we have a, a double decocted three percent like Grodzitski, a Polish style Grodzitski on tap sure, next sure. door, um, and that beer is 100 percent oak smoked malt. Hundred percent, hundred percent oak wow. smoked malt. Okay. Um, and so, but I had but I fermented that one way low too because I didn't want the fruitiness with the because to me that's honestly what like that's kind of what ash smells like to me when people are like oh smoke is ash. I'm from Memphis. I'm, I'm all about smoke. Sure, Don't sure. wrong. Like it's like smoke is, I love everything smoked. And, uh, I think that when you, when you add fruitiness to smoke, that to me turns in, that's what ash smells like to me. It's like a mixture of like, like fruit and, and smoke. So I always try to like keep it way lower. Like the fermentation temperature is like really low on that beer. Um, extended aging on those kinds of beers, anything that I want to be cleaner, comes out longer. It takes longer. Um, and again, again, most of my schedule is directly from Ashley. It's all just like talking to her about how she's, and she doesn't ferment with Augustina, by the way, they, they use a completely different culture, um, which her and I've talked extensively about their culture and what they do versus our culture. And, um, I think eventually we'll bring some stuff in like different lager you send and play with them. But at the moment we just kind of wanted to stick with Augustina is like, and then figure out how to make all these beers off of that. Um, I got a smoked Doppelbach on tap too. That was a different, that was a challenge in and of itself. Double decocted. Each decoction was over a half hour long. I mean, that they're, they're, they're different, man. They're like nothing like what we make. They're nothing like what we make. They're nothing like anything else. I, I, now I want to go drink your smoked beers yeah. uh, because <laughs> I do have a special thing for nice. smoked beers. And, uh, 
and I do not subscribe to this general uh, hatred for that. Yeah, that I style. agree, man. It seems very uh, vociferous among a, a certain slice of. Uh, well, of and half of my staff that like hates it. I'm like, you're outside chain smoking all day, and then you don't <laughs> like drinking this like smoked beer. Like, how are you to talk? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you do you finish with natural carbonation and spunding uh, a la the beer method? Uh, Not we, just beer stop, but I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of German brewers as well with natural carbonation. Yeah, we we don't on these ones. Um, we will. So this year coming up, I'm doing a I'm doing these four like I'm trying to do these four packs in the quarter, where it's a different pilsner every quarter. We have a German pils coming out first in the in Q1 of of this year, this new new 2020 podcast episode. Um, so we're gonna do that one. We're gonna do some natural carbonation on. And on the Czech style lager, we're going to do some natural carbonation on. The other two are going to be an Italian style pills and like sort of a southeastern pre-prohibition pilsner. So those we're not. We're going to do like forced carb on those. But we're going to do uh, natural carb on some of the more traditional styles that we're doing. And, and postcard will stay as a forced carb beer. Cool. Um, when, you, when you say Italian pilsner, this is a, a fascinating subject to me because I've had plenty of quote unquote Italian style pilsners. Uh, Tipo pills or yeah. pa- paleo pills from Alvarado Street and others that I love, absolutely sure. love. Um, you know, as we mentally kind of create these definitions for variations on Pilsner, uh, how do you define these kinds of things? Like, what what's the threshold for something like uh, like a contemporary American style Pilsner? Sure. Um, which you know, if you're Highland Park and you're brewing quote-unquote pilsner with uh you know mosaic and right yeah. creating you know timbo pills out of something like that which is awesome and it tastes fantastic and i love it um or you know you know kind of pushing the realm of dry hopped pilsners in an american sense like what what creates this idea of italian pilsner for you as an american brewer trying to brew something that appeals to that idea of italian pills uh t- typically for me it's mostly like I, I'm going to use the word aggressive, but I think in my mind it's a little more subtle than maybe someone might interpret what I mean. I would say like a more aggressive German pills is kind of what it is, where it's 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 fairly pronouncedly uh, bitter for all intents and purposes, dry, um, right. dry hopped, um, but not, again not like IPA standard, not West Coast IPA sure, standard, sure. not like that sort of you know aggressiveness but just like uh, like again a, a a a little bit more of an aggressive version of like a german style pills which is you know still clean still like super you know like nothing there malt character really crisp sort of malt flavor profile very dry decent bitterness that sort of lingers a little bit maybe more than a german pills would and then a uh a, an aroma that isn't completely bound to sort of just malt complexity that is also has a, a deeper element of hop, and that, I would say that's really kind of my vision for like what what you know. I would I'm also would never try to define that either. You know, sure, I'm, I'm also sure. following someone else's definition, but that would be what I would how I would describe it. You know, and the the kind of where we draw the lines between these things is I, I think a kind of fungible and flexible mm-hmm. and constantly changing thing. Um, you know that that some of all of these styles and all of what we think about as beer styles are constantly in flux mm-hmm. you know that uh, consumer expectations are what drive these things and those expectations you know change from uh year to year or decade to decade and so uh, uh not being too hardcore uh or uh hard about some of these style you know and the ends of these styles i think is a, a good approach to take on this St- style like naming is so 
lame now. I just like, I don't even, <laughs> I try to like naming something to me at this point is more about me trying to explain it sure. than it is for me trying to like define anything. Right. Like, like a, I was, I was making sour IPAs in 2012. I had no idea that anyone would be able to understand what the hell a sour IPA was. And now it's like a thing that everyone knows, which is rad, but I remember right, saying right. it and it not like resonating. Like I had to come up with other terms in order to kind of like fool you into drinking this thing. <laughs> and so like, now it's like, yeah, now it's like, yeah, sour IPA. Oh yeah. It's sour IPA. It's like, I mean, that's cool. I'm happy that everyone sort of has evolved and learned and as brewers and as consumers. Um, but it's, you know, I'm not, I, I, I don't care if anybody calls something whatever they want to call it. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's, that's a, a whole other conversation, <laughs> which uh, takes us down a gigantic rabbit hole. Um, let's instead talk a little bit about mixed fermentation. Cool. Now, mixed fermentation, you know, it's a subject that's near and dear to your heart. Obviously, it's been something that Green Bench has focused on uh, from the very early days of the brewery. Um, talk to me a little bit about your entree in that and uh, uh, where you draw your inspiration on the mixed fermentation side. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, like probably a lot of brewers that you know produce mixed firm beers. I mean, it definitely all starts at our at our at, in our hearts with. I mean, for me at least, with with my first you know experience with like lambic and my first experience with you know, Belgian sours and, um, and learning just, just how complicated they were and how, then again, the majority of the complication all came from circumstance, right? Like it was all just like, well, what were you left with? What did you have? What were the, were the ingredients and the equipment that you have? And you sort of made beer because of that, you know, that's, and this is what it came out to be like. Um, so I'd say it always started with those. I think early on, I remember, hanging out with like Ben Romano, you know, at, 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 uh, angry chair when, yep. when we were working together at Southern brewing and winemaking and then cigar city, just like, like my, really my first, uh, uh, sort of American style sour beers all came from like the ca cascade beers. Really. It was like, you know, and, and he was like the guy that like had bottles of cascade and he would have like carboys of like dregs and stuff. And that was like my first sort of, you know, really interest in sort of mixed fermentation on the United States side um, was, was drinking Cascade beer with him. And, and then that sort of at the same time was when him and I were both learning about kettle sours. Um, and so it was, it was our, our easy quick way to sort of create some of these things. But even early on, I, I didn't really want to be bound by that. I mean, I, I like I like kettle sour beers. They're just, you know, they're, they're one note to me. They're just sort of like they're lactic acid and they're clean and they're what they're supposed to be. And like, but that's about it. And there's, there's, there's a, not a lack of depth, but there's just, you know, because it is what it is. It's not meant to be anything more. There's, there's just a lot for me. Sometimes when I drink them, that is sort of left unsaid or, or just unexperienced. And the mixed culture beers always just had so much more depth of, of flavor and, and interest to me that um, just kept drawing draw me back. So like I immediately started making Berliner Weiss. That was literally I was pitching you know Britannomyces and Lactobacillus and and co-ferment and sure. and trying to create. Uh, even all, you know, I was doing six month Berliner vices. Now at the same time I was making kettle sours and stuff too, but like the first Berliner bash on the bay at, uh, Peg's Cantina, which is Peg is Doug Dozark from cycles. Mom, she had a restaurant in Gulfport and he yeah. made beer there. Uh, he invited me at the first one and I poured there and just under the name Chris Johnson. And then, <laughs> and I had a, I had a, 
a co-ferment Berliner Weiss that was there. And so I've always sort of, and this is like 2010 maybe, and, and I was super interested in these beers, um, but there just wasn't anything around. Like when we opened, you couldn't get, the Jolly Pumpkin wasn't even on the shelves in Florida. Yeah. You know, like, like there was no context for mixed firm, let alone Cezanne even, you know, like Bob was you know, obviously making farmhouse ale forever, but I mean, it was like banging your head against the wall to try to get people to like listen and understand or be you interested. Say Bob, yeah. Bob Sylvester, Sorry, yeah. Saint, Saint, Saint somewhere. somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob Sylvester, who is, I mean, the OG, especially here locally, let alone you know locally and probably in the country, and um, he's inspired countless mixed firm brewers that sure. probably most people didn't realize, and he inspired. Um, and so, I think when we opened, yeah, we we're trying to make mixed firm beers, but. I think we tried to take a step back and say, like, let's start with sort of farmhouse ale. Let's start with Britannomyces. And then with time, we'll expand what we do as the market begins to understand how to say Britannomyces. You know, sure, like it sure, was. Sure. So we started there. So, we, you know, we're making 100% Britannomyces yeah, you know, beers. From a commercial and, standpoint, you can't expect people to understand what these flavors not are. Not at all. Not at all. have that. You know, it, it's, it's like you know, advanced flavors and any kind of, you know, food or beverage kind of category. If you have an audience that understand has a context for mm-hmm. appreciating, you know, what that is, then you can do that. But, you know, if you're not in New York or maybe LA, yep. uh, good luck yep. with, with certain types of, you know, culinary or beverage approaches. Um, you know, in a sense, right, you have to kind of bring the audience along with you. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, 2013, New Belgium wasn't in Florida. Like, literally, my friend would say, like, hey, I'm going to Atlanta. I'd be like, yo, give me a couple cases of fat tire. Like, we couldn't get it. Like, it was like that. And in 13, like, that's not that long ago. And yet, and so there was no context, man. And again, and I think I was naive in the very beginning to assume that, like, everyone was into the same shit I was, and like, which was silly. And, uh, and I, I realized real quick, like nobody knows, it was, it was, we would make beer, like people would walk in like, all right, cool. First brew in Florida in St. Pete. Like, what do you guys, what do you guys do? And we're like, oh, I make, you know, hot Ford ales, um, hundred percent oak fermented farmhouse sales and a custom built fooder and wild mixed firm sour beers. And they just like want to walk away. And I'm like, well, dude, like, you know, like cricket stave and, you know, I'm like Anchorage and Jolly, you know, Jolly Pumpkin and Jester King and the brewery. And they're like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. So that's actually why I ended up making a festival completely based on that conversation that I kept having with consumers, which is like, I need to expose you to this. Cause like, obviously you don't know what I'm talking. Like, why did I ever think that you would know what I was talking about? That's probably cause I was 25, but it just, I just didn't, I, I didn't get it. And then, and then I had to, you know, I had to backpedal hard and be like, okay, let's, let's baby steps, you know? And then having learned all that, having spent six years doing that and then being like, okay, you know what? We're going to go through this, this expansion. Like we, the building we're literally in, which is next door to our main facility. When we first got it, which was five years ago, the first thing I said was like, man, we could turn this into a packaging hall. I could put, you know, bright tanks over here, uh, a centrifuge, a canning line, a bottling line, a keg line, and we can run tanks in our main facility all the way up to the taste room window, and I can make 30,000 barrels of beer in this facility. Or we can do what we did, which was turn this into a mixed firm cellar, way less production, you know what I mean? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, and, and having learned what we learned in those first few years, we built this with all of sort of that experience, which was like building a tasting room and a 
mixed culture facility from the ground up with the intent of selling and producing those beers. And man, thank God we had all that experience because like, you know, I would never have, uh, we would never have been able to take our first step as well as we did. Um, and I don't think it never, it, it would have nearly been as successful as it has been this, you know, we're less than a year old and I'm selling more mixed firm beer now than I ever have. Uh, and a big part of that is because, you know, we built a facility, like I, we literally took a whiteboard like in the office and we're like, all right, what are the distractions between the consumer ordering and enjoying this beer? And then we just started listing distractions and we, we built the facility eliminating all of those specific things that we could to say like, you know, you know, one of them was kids, you know, like, I mean, frankly, we, we're a family friendly place. You were talking about like outside, we got kids running around having fun with their family. Everyone's in town for the holidays. Like it's beautiful. Outside. It's like 80 degrees outside. The breeze is blowing. It's, it's beautiful here. And yet web city is 21 and older. Everything else isn't. This is the only one that is. And part of that wasn't, it, it's not to say so that this is a safe space for those yeah. that don't like kids and breweries. Well, not even just the people that don't like kids, but yes, that <laughs> the biggest part actually for us was not just the people that don't like kids, but the parents, right? Like it is distracting as a parent I, to I, have I kids I, I and have, then have to experience yeah. this. So that, that's part of it. It's like, I'm trying to help the parent too. Like, sure, no, you sure. shouldn't come in yet. Like come when you get a sitter or your parents get all, or something like that. Cause then we can talk about this and you can experience right, it's, right. it's a distraction. I've got two kids and yeah. I'll tell you, I do like those. If I'm going out at night, I like to spend some time away from kids because I have spent enough of my life around my kids. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we have two spots. Again, you again. can come hang out with the kids. You sure, can sure. come out with the wife and chill, you know? Let's uh, let's drill down a little bit and talk about mixed fermentation. You know, when we, you know, every brewer I talk to that's uh, engaged in mixed fermentation has a romantic story about the beers that inspired them and how they poured bottle dregs and they <laughs> built this culture that they homebrewed from, and they don't know what's in it anymore, and who knows? And sure, you know, maybe some of them have banked it at BSI so they can call back to it. Um, talk to me a little bit about how what your mixed fermentation process looks like uh how you've built a culture sure what you've looked for in that kind of culture uh you know what kind of attributes you find make good beer and how you've kind of selected towards that yeah so um i guess similarly uh my mixed culture uh i spent i did spend roughly the last seven years kind of developing it but it wasn't always good let me start there like um for probably four years to be honest with you like i i i wasn't I didn't really like it that much. Um, what it is now, at least this one. Um, so a lot of the early beers we were producing or rather releasing, most of them didn't have this culture in them. Most of them were like other things that we we're doing. Britannomyces focused, farmhouse focused, uh, you know, you know, wild, but not necessarily overly acidic blends and stuff like that. So our mixed culture, essentially, again, I also do not know what's it's, in it. It's funny that you say that. And mm -hmm. I know I've had this conversation with you, but yeah. there, you know, you, You'd sent us beer back in the early days of yeah. the magazine. Like, it was good. Yeah. And then there was a certain point where I was tasting it. It's like, wait, this is this just got a lot better. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting as we kind of, as we taste, you know, critically through these kinds of things to breeze to find those kind of turning points. Like, 
you know, and it, it became that moment like, okay, now I mm-hmm. am engaging with this at a, at a different kind of level. What was that aha moment for you? Uh, I don't actually know specifically what it was. Yeah. I, I remember like when kind of it was, but I don't remember what happened. So our, our culture, I don't actually know what's in it. It, it is it is at this point dozens of, of lab cultures, some mixes, some individual cultures from here, 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 and here, wherever. Like I was pulling lacto from here or Britannomyces from here or some just Saccharomyces cultures um, uh, or PDO. Or, and, and there's dozens probably of individual you know strains in there. Um, there are some dregs as well. But all of it, the way I, the way it worked for us is, and it all comes from, we have, we have our golden sour. Her name's Alice. And that's really the basis of everything we do is, is Alice. Ironically, Alice for me never was a beer. Alice was the culture. So I was always using the term Alice to describe the thing that I was trying to create, which was this mixed culture. And I just happened to use the same golden sour recipe to sort of propagate and use and sort of you know, blend. And I would have several barrels of Alice. For me, it was just the cultures. And then some barrels I liked, some I didn't. The ones I liked, I would blend together and or blend parts of and or put dregs in some that I didn't like or I did like. And then I'd sort of taste over time and then blend and rebrew and blend and then rebrew and blend. And it was just like this constant evolution over years of doing this. And eventually everyone, I guess me talking about it, I guess I didn't explain that as well as I in my head, I saw it. So everyone was like, oh, yeah, so this, this Golden Sour, this is Alice. And I was like, wait, no, the Golden... And I was like, that's fine. I mean, what am I... <laughs> so now our Golden Sour is Alice. But I always meant it to be the culture. The is culture it, name it, became the brand name. Yeah. And so um, basically, yeah, at this point, again, it's so many things. We, we typically ferment in a fooder. Um, we have a 90 hectoliter fooder over here, um, which is roughly 75 barrels. So we produce generally large batches of sort of stock beer. Um, and I, I, my philosophy, if you will, um, I, I like acidity. I prefer medium acidity rather than like heavy acidity. I think that uh, personally, it's not to say we don't have some more acidity. I, I think the one you have is, is, is higher than medium. But, I, you know, but the ones that I like Alice as a base is generally a little less than that. I, I'm drinking uh, one of your sours right now. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, you're drinking Simple Fix, which is sort of our second use raspberry uh, beer, and it's more than medium, but I prefer sort of the medium flavor profile. So we generally start with that. Um, we have Alice, Mira, and Wilbur, uh, basically a golden, a red, and a dark sour um, that we do all sorts of you know variant blends off of, and then we have some 100% Britannomyces beers that are aging in barrels that have no acidity that we use to blend back, um, and we do have sort of like mixed culture saison um, as well, which is generally like. Pilsner, torrefied wheat, you know, malted oats, uh, aged hops. We, we age hops, like whole leaf hops in our uh, main facility. I, we have, there's a deck basically above our walk-in cooler in the rafters, so we have burlap sacks of aged hops up there. So we'll use that, those hops for that beer, which actually is currently fermenting in the fooder. And then I have some tote tanks that we sometimes will do, like, primary fermentations in with our mixed culture and stainless. Um, generally we use them for fruit refermentations and or dry hopping. And then we have a bright tank as well, a 60 barrel bright tank just for mixed firm. And I've got almost 600 barrels filled right now of mixed firm beer. Um, my, my sort of what I found that I like the most is I don't like, well, I, I have more success rather more than I like or don't like with um, blending 
rather than trying to create from the ground up something. So for example, like if in my head I want to make a um, mixed culture, sort of like a, like a smoked mixed culture beer, the best way that I can do that and the, 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 to be the most exact and the most poignant and sort of you know, intentional is to blend. So I'll usually take stock, like, like mixed culture beer, and then I'll build from the ground up like a clean smoked beer, for example, like like Kratzitsky yeah. potentially, and then take that beer on the lager, like with a clean lager fermentation, get it all done, and then blend that with sour beer in order to create the brand that I want. So same thing with like sort of like we're doing this line coming out soon of mixed culture sour IPAs. We've been doing kettle sour, sour IPAs. Like I said, I've been sure. making them since 2012. Since we opened, we've had sour IPAs on. We're going to start doing some mixed culture ones, which are legitimately blends of actual clean IPA that we produce and mixed culture beers. Um, and then the same way with sort of like Saison. Sometimes we take intentional barrel-aged, non-acidic Saison. We're blending back with sour beers. We're blending sours with sours, sours without. And so that's really what our our program is. Otherwise, we do really heavy fruit refermentations. You know, peach alice and raspberry alice are over seven pounds of whole fruit per gallon of beer, which is damn near like wine. Like you almost sure, like it's sure. almost not beer anymore. Right, right. Um, and then we'll do second use refermentations on those. And um, yeah, that that's that's kind of the breadth of our of our program for mixed firm. And then here in the cellar, you know, we we have 12, 12 taps downstairs, whereas in the main facility, I've got like twenty two or something, twenty four. Um, and then over here, it's, so it's a little bit more intentional. You know, I keep postcard on tap or any kind of logger that I have at the time. I'm out of postcard at the moment because the holidays <laughs> literally sold like a hundred, 120 barrels worth of postcard in like less than a month, huh. like gone, like insane. So anyway, and we'll keep IPA on tap over here, but the other 10 handles we'll try to, you know, have like Alice and then we'll have some fruited versions, some second use fruited, some Saison, some blends of Saison and sort of tart beers, not really right. sour. And then some like non-acidic beers as well, like, you know, Le Crisette, like 100% Britannomyces beers, um, stuff like that. And then it gives the consumer the ability to kind of just get a pills if they want to or an IPA if they want to, but also be able to get any range of high acidity to medium to none. Um, and then different price ranges on that too. You know, like you're, you're either buying a, a pilsner, you know, or you're you're sometimes spending a dollar fifty an ounce on something that's crazy right, fruit right. refermentation. So, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, making sour IPA with uh, you know kind of traditional mixed sour uh, mixed fermentation sour sure. beer. Uh, it's something that we haven't talked on the on the podcast about. Certainly, we've written about Hudson Valley in the past, and I think they're probably the most well-known brewery yeah. for kind of pioneering that mixture. Like the idea of creating canned sour beer has always been, uh, you know, attached to the idea of kettle sour. Sure. Then why would you take some long process, you know, six-month, uh, eight-month, twelve-month, you know, mixed fermentation sour beer? And then blend it in with an IPA in order to produce this thing that you then put in cans. It seemed to kind of devalue the work and the time that you put into that. Um, you know, but they have certainly, and, and there are brewers now that have kind of adopted that approach. Um, you know, blending twenty percent of that in with you know eighty percent of uh, nice, hazy, and rich and yeah. juicy you know IPA can certainly produce uh, you know, more complexity in the acidity um, that complements those kind of hops characters in a more whole way. And there is, a, you know, there is certainly within the world of craft beer right now 
um, an acceptance of the price tiers that are necessary in order to sell that at a point where you can make the profit that you need to make on it for the amount of work into it. Talk to me from a brewing perspective a, a little bit about how um, you envision those kinds of things and how you think about you know even blending, say, a uh, or building a uh, hazy IPA in order to blend in with this kind of mixed uh, fermentation sour stock. Yeah, I, I, I tend to actually think about it more on the IPA side more than I do the mixed culture side if I'm doing a sour sure. IPA because I think that the defining characteristic of the beer is probably going to mostly come from the IPA than it is from the sour. Like, sure, uh, you know, yeah, you can kettle sour a beer and then hop it like an IPA and then ferment it out and it's going to be a sour IPA. But again, we mentioned earlier, I said, you know, I, I love kettle sours. They tend to be one note for me. Um which I sometimes I prefer, but there there's, it's, it's literally just acidity and then IPA. Whereas I think with the mixed culture stuff, what I, what I'm able to do, especially with like a hazy IPA and like Alice by itself, she has like a really nice, almost like peach apricot characteristic to her. That is, is inherent in sort of the mixed culture in the process that I think works really well with sort of the ester profile that we get from our hazy IPAs, for example, which also took us a while to feel comfortable with, like, took me two years before I was like, uh, well, a year really before I was like, okay, yeah, now we figured out. And it was going through all these different types of yeast with hazy IPA and figuring out which ones work the best for us. And then process wise on, you know, is there a way to harvest yeast from a hazy IPA with sure, all these hops sure. and fermentation, all this stuff. So I think once we developed all that, we figured out our formula with, with that we preferred. And generally speaking, I think our hazy IPAs are typically probably a touch drier than, say, like the sort of top rated ones in the world. But again, it's based off my preference of being able to drink them. Um, and you're here in Florida where it's hot yeah. and, uh, you know, having that kind of extra drinkability certainly makes a sense. You say that, but then Imperial Stout's here, dude. <laughs> Um, it's weird. Man. I, I don't know how to explain it. You're right. You're right. So uh, yeah, I, I think that like, I almost look at it from an, from the IPA first standpoint when I'm looking to blend sour beer in. Cause again, stock, I know what that beer is. I understand. I can taste a bunch of barrels. There's some variances, but what I'm really looking for from these are from the mixed culture side, as I'm pointing at these barrels is I'm looking to complement the IPA more so than the IPA to the mixed culture. Because I think at the end of the day, a sour IPA its heart, its root is really IPA more than it is acidity, right? Like if you're just looking for acidity in a sour beer, like I have plenty of those and I have a, there's a mixed culture golden sour you can have. But if you're specifically looking for a sour IPA, I think it's the play from the IPA as really the, the sort of heart of that beer. And I'm using sour beer, stock sour beer to complement some of those fruity characteristics that you get from those beers. So I'll start with that first. I'll start with saying like how, what fruit direction do I want to go? What sort of, you know, hot profile do I want to go with this IPA? And then I will blend the beer, the sour beer into that to accentuate those characters. Um, do you, how do you think about, you know, say uh, attenuation and sweetness in the unblended IPA before you add that? Because, you know, you now you're blending in some blending stock. Uh, and I'd love to know, you know, if you have some percentage ideas of how those kinds of things mix, um, you know, do you focus on maybe an under attenuated 
IPA in order to, you know, by the time you add this very dry, long-term sure. aged sour beer, it's going to uh, certainly lower the overall sweetness of that. But that sweetness is pretty important in that style mm-hmm. to kind of heighten the, the kind of juiciness and those, those kind of feelings. How do you think about like targeting this IPA part of the blend, knowing that you're going to mix a, you know, kind of a dry beer into it? I, I think honestly, the, the biggest in, well, the, it, it depends on what you're looking for exactly, because I think there are some sour IPAs where I prefer some dryness, or I prefer more of like a citrus focus, like sure. grapefruit, right? Grapefruit's not, I mean, it's sweet, but if I'm looking for a beer that tastes like grapefruit, I'm almost looking for it to be maybe drier than a beer that's something like, yeah. that's a like an apricot or a peach characteristic. Right, right. So I would definitely say that those beers that maybe are a touch sweeter, Lactose is a great way of doing it. I mean, obviously, a lot of breweries are doing that, where that IPA had its lactose in it, right? And a lot of our sort of Florida IPA series, the Flippa series we do, which is like kettle sour and sour IPA that's fruited, hazy um, sour IPAs, those are, um, we use lactose in almost all of those, um, which kind of gives more of that body, more of that sweetness, that characteristic. So I think like with those ones, if I, my intent is to, is to blend back, but I want it to be a fruit that needs to be a little sweeter, Generally, those are going to be a lactose-forward beer, yeah. or they're going to have, um, you know, you, you can use vanilla, you can use things like that to sort of accentuate sweetness right. without it being true residual sort of like unfermentable sort of wort, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so I think you just, you sort of build those layers of unfermentability that isn't necessarily inherent in the base beer, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. Um, when you think about hops, uh, you know, how do you, uh, you know, consider those and uh, what's that process look like for you? Well, I mean, uh, I think the majority of the hops that we use, I mean, a lot of the bases and that we use are, are kind of almost always going to include some kind of citra, like some sort of like sure. some of the, the big ones, the citras, the mosaics, sometimes a Simcoe or like an Azaka, which are the ones that we use the most in everything that we produce. They just like, they just like win. Like it doesn't matter what you do. It's like, Oh, that beer is delicious too. Um, so there's usually some, we're usually using some of those. And then I like to sprinkle in other stuff or play with other hops. For example, like a hop that I'm super stoked on that I haven't really heard many of the brewers talking about. And I'm, I'm waiting until I finally am not as interested anymore to figure out like why no one is as excited. I'm like, I I must be missing something because I don't see anybody talking about this much, but lemon drop is unbelievable to me and specifically with citra like those two together create like almost like it almost turns the citrus into like this like fruity apricot thing to like passion fruit to me like it gets like this like tangy sort of like citrus that is like i i love it and so i think like so things between like lemon drop hollertau blanc have really been fascinating to me i love that hop we use El Dorado in the past that I've really liked as well. Some stuff that we've pulled, but it's mostly, it's mostly like Citra as sort of a base. And then sort of, you just build other hops around that hop. Um, which is honestly something that I think I probably learned not specifically Citra, but learned to sort of do this hop profile fit game. Um, we did that a lot at cigar city when I was there. Um, a lot of what we did was sort of like start with a base of anywhere between, you know, as low as 20%, as high as 60% sometimes of one hop. And then you use that as sort of your foundation. And then you're sort of building a profile of different hops around right. it. And that's what we did a lot there. And I think that's, I, I took a lot of that with me when we, when I opened here and before that as well is, is sort of building IPAs that way. 
starting with like, and Citra is generally the base of most of my hot profile um, when it comes to what I, what I make. Yeah. Well, you're here in Florida, which is well known for its citrus <laughs> yeah. industry. And, uh, you know, there are some flavors that are very, uh, you know, familiar and common for, for people yeah. down here. Yeah. Um, we're actually starting to run out of time, but uh, it's, that happened fast. I know, no, right? Uh, talk, talk to me a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the questions I try to ask people when we're here is, uh, is what does success look oh. like for you? You know, uh, you know, we're all moving forward in businesses, pushing forward, trying to make things that uh, you know, products that are relevant to people that find an audience. You know, you want to make things that people like because you know you're in a business of you know, providing that kind of happiness to people. Um, you know, but what does success for Green Bench and success for you look like? Man, I think that success, well, I'd say at least for success for me, which I think bleeds into, you know, my vision of what success for the business is, at least from my perspective, is going to be making the people that, honestly, I think it starts with the people that choose to work here, like super proud, like them and their families really proud. So, you know, I, I'd like cherish every person that decides that they want to work at Green Bench Brewing Company. Like that means the world to me. Like the fact that someone's like, this is a job I want and they show up every day and they have a passion for it and they're excited about it. It means that like I can't let them down and I have to continue to, to try to be better like at every single thing that I'm doing, which making beer is an important part of what I do. It's like far from the only thing that, that, that I do. And so it's, I, my, my job is to provide our employees, our staff, our coworkers with all of the tools that they need to be successful. And if I can help them sort of reach whatever goals they personally have, then it, it increases the value of my business way more than if I was just trying to push it up myself. And I, and I think the older we get as a, as a business, the more focus I tend to pull or, or give towards that, which is just like trying to make them proud, like trying to make them super excited to work here, trying to make them feel like they, they made a great decision by wanting to work here and by choosing to work here and then making their families super proud of them as well, that they're doing something that they're happy with and they're able to come home and, and you know, spend time with their kids and, and their kids see them happy like that is that's that's success to me like that's what i'm trying to do and yes it means that i have to make sure that we consistently have consumers in here that are excited and and enjoying what we're doing and are on board and you know it's packed as much as possible and we're making interesting beers and we're making them clean and we're making them um you know with intention and and as I get excited about the beers, the only thing that makes me more excited than beer is like is are my coworkers or the people that I work with. It's a cool philosophy, Chris. Cheers to that. Thanks, man. Before we get out of here, breweries that you trust trust G and D chillers for their chilling needs. Old Orchard supplies craft juice blends from the heart of Beer City. SS Brewtech launched with the goal to advance brewing equipment design. And breweries that use Second Kitchen have seen up to 1.8x return on revenue. Uh, If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. Chris, if people want to learn more about Green Bench Brewing here in St. Petersburg, Florida, where do they find you guys? Yeah, we uh, our website, greenbenchbrewing.com. We're on 
the social medias uh, of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to look me up personally, it's at Crispy Boy, but it's K H R I S. Uh, that's that's a good one. So yeah, that is that's, a good uh, one. That, wow. that's how you keep up with I it. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, surprise! A oh, quick, quick little joke there. Um, I was writing my name, and it suggested crispy. With a with a K, I was writing. Actually, I was I was wrong. I was writing Crispy Boy with a C, and it suggested to change it to K H. And I was like, Oh well, that's my handle now. And so I just stuck with it. So yeah, it works. <laughs> it works for you uh, on so so many <laughs> levels. Oh, uh, Chris Johnson, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, man. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.